0: Good evening, good evening, good evening and welcome to Socrates in the city, I think it's called, Uh, the thinking person's alternative to watching Smokey and the Bandit 2. You see by that statement, I'm implying that it's, uh, it's okay to watch Smokey and the Bandit 1. But, uh, but they're watching Smokey in the Bandit 2 is just beyond the pale. And uh, the reason I'm uh, implying that is because that's exactly how I feel. So there. Um, I have to say that it is rewarding and encouraging and heartening to see so many people here on such a cold night uh, in New York City with the traffic and, and everything. I'm always curious uh, how many people are here. If you're here tonight, would you raise your hand? I'm just... That's an old joke. Um, You know, I have to say that if you are here tonight, that means that you're not at home watching Smokey and the Bandit 1, which actually is on TV tonight, which prompted my thinking along these Smokey and the Bandit lines. Um, But it's actually on TV tonight. um, Again, the original, not Smokey and the Bandit 2, God forbid. Um, And it starts shortly. And I just want you to know that you're missing that. And if, if, uh, if armed with this information which is probably new to most of you who didn't scour the uh tv listings this morning um if armed with this new information that that uh movie is playing right now you feel in any way compelled you know to to just slip out and maybe uh watch that i just want you to know that i'm going to look the other way and i understand i won't uh i don't want you to feel badly but uh if you were to slip out to watch smoking the bandit 2 i want you to know that i would single you out and mock you as you exited so have i made my feelings clear on which movie i prefer you know the one with uh, paul williams and pat mccormick and sally field and also there's a fine uh, performance by jerry reed as the snowman thank you well tonight folks if you end up staying and not slipping away to see smoking the bandit 1 the original which i prefer to There's actually a third. Um, Burt Reynolds was not in the third one, so... But they say it's better than the second one. Um, But if you end up staying, and I think some of you probably will end up staying, I hope, if I don't go on too long. If you end up staying, uh, you'll have the high privilege of hearing uh, from our very, very dear friend, Dr. Oz Guinness. Um, As I always say when Oz is, is here speaking at Socrates in the city, and he does so regularly, I say that if it weren't for Oz there wouldn't be any Socrates in the city. That is true. Uh, without Oz's urbanity and sophistication, I'm sure it would have probably ended up being called, you know, Rollo in the Detox or or like Jojo at the Free Clinic or something like that. Um, no, actually, uh, it is true. If it weren't for Oz Guinness, uh, there would be no Socrates in the city. Uh, Oz and I uh, and a couple of other friends, but mainly it was Oz and I came up with this idea about four years ago. We wanted to create a forum in which jaded, uh, cynical New Yorkers, that would be you, um, would be able to think more deeply about the big questions in life. And the idea that we could take a thoughtless group (laughs) like this and somehow amazingly uh, make you just think a, a tiny bit more than you do in your normally thoughtless lives, is uh, an extraordinary thing and encouragement, and I have Oz uh, to thank for that. Um, Socrates, of course, said the unexamined life is not worth living, and so we call these evenings conversations on the examined life. Um, But seriously, for helping us uh, figure out what Socrates is all about and for being willing to speak many, many times, especially when we're getting started, I want to say formally, thank you, Dr. Oz Guinness. You were supposed to applaud, but that's okay. uh... You know, in the studio audiences, Oz, they usually have a thing that flashes applause, and, you know, the jaded, cynical New Yorkers don't, uh, I don't know. Um, okay, Oz's talk tonight is, is uh, titled One True God, the Glory or the Scandal of the West. I have not heard this talk. I'm very, very excited uh, to hear it. Anytime uh, Oz speaks, I have to say, it's just incredibly rewarding. If you've not heard him speak before, I think you'll see tonight uh, what I'm talking about. Uh, just a few words on Oz, if you don't know who he is or what he's done. Um, he was born in China uh, during World War II. He remained there until 1951. His parents were missionaries. In uh, 1951, they left when the communists forced most foreigners to leave. Uh, since then, he's lived mostly in England, Switzerland, and the United States. Oz has studied at Labri and Oxford University, and he's written or edited more than 20 books, including The American Hour, Highly recommended by me. The Call, Time for Truth, and Long Journey Home. Uh, Most of those I think we have extraordinary books. Since 1984, Oz uh, has lived in the Washington, D.C. area. He was a guest scholar at the Woodrow Wilson Center for International Studies and then a guest scholar and visiting fellow at the Brookings Institution. And he was for many years a senior fellow at the Trinity Forum, which some of you know about. Oz's deep concern in the work that he does is to bridge the chasm between academic knowledge and popular knowledge, taking things that are academically important and making them intelligible and practicable to a wider audience, especially as they concern matters of public policy. Okay, now a word on our format tonight. Uh, As usual, our speaker, in this case Oz, will speak for about 40 minutes. Uh, Then we will have about that much time for questions and answers, Uh, provided the questions are not monologues, I'm going to warn you way up front. Somebody's going to do it. You know somebody's just going to do it. That's okay. Whoever that is, I don't get it. Um, uh, We will try to end sharply uh, at 8.30, and we'll try to end crisply at 8.31. Um, So after that, we'll have more wine hors d'oeuvres and piano music. And incidentally, piano music, Sue Song, who has graced us with her extraordinary talent just about every time we've gotten together. Um, does this out of the goodness of her heart, which is outrageous, and if we weren't so poor, we wouldn't let that happen, and we probably won't forever, but there are CDs of her music here, which would make, I think, lovely Christmas presents, so please uh, think about that on your way out. Uh, Speaking of Christmas presents, and we were, uh, I know I was, um, we have a book table and CDs of previous talks, not all of them, but most of our previous talks. People are always asking, can I get a CD, can I get a CD? If you're here tonight, you can get a CD. And they're priced at $5, which is a joke. So, you know, (laughs) stocking stuffers, that's uh, really something you should think about. There are also copies, I was told, I had to do this. There are copies of a great journal of the arts there called Mars Hill Review. Um, This particular issue contains a humor piece that I wrote. It's actually a review of the Da Vinci Code in the voice of Screw Tape of the Screwtape Letters. <laughs> and uh, Screwtape loves that book, I have to say. But um, if you'd have a look, that's, uh, that's the Mars Hill Review. It's, it's a fabulous magazine, and it uh, it deserves uh, our support. Good magazine, amazing magazine, really. Okay, before I turn the podium um, over to Oz, I want to say that for those of you tonight who have not slipped out while I was not looking to watch Smoking the Bandit, I don't know, did I mention that it's on tonight? It's on, uh, I think it's starting right about now. But those who did not slip out to watch that, and who have opted instead to hear Oz, um, first of all, I want to thank you. I believe you've made the right choice. But I'm not here to judge. I just want to affirm you in your choice. But because you took the trouble to come out uh, in the cold and to miss Burt Reynolds' monkey shines, uh, I want, as a sort of consolation prize to you, uh, to read some of the lyrics to the theme song, from Smokey and the Bandit. Um, I hope this uh, assuages your feelings of loss, which I know some of you are are feeling. And incidentally, folks, these lyrics were written by the snowman himself, Mr. Jerry Reed. Eastbound and down, Loaded up and truckin', We gonna do what they say can't be done. We've got a long way to go, in a short time to get there, I'm eastbound, just watch old bandit run. Is it sounding familiar? Anybody want to do this? <laughs> Put your foot down on the pedal. Someday we'll find them breaks. Let it all hang out, because we got a run to make. The boys are thirsty in Atlanta, and there's beer in Texarkana, and we'll bring it back no matter what it takes. Thank you very much. Um, Anyway, I I hope that for those of you who are uh, missing Smokey and the Bandit tonight, that you feel a little bit better. I know I can't make it up to you entirely, but uh, of course I feel really terrible. You know, you can always rent it tomorrow. I mean, geez. Um, But tonight, folks, there will be no CB lingo. No transams, no eighteen wheelers, and thank goodness no smokies. Gotta watch them smokies. Instead, we have something far better. We have our very dear friend, Dr. Oz Guinness.
1: Thank you, Eric. It's a real delight to be back again. You never know what he's gonna say, but the one will have to follow. I have, as an Englishman, no clue who Smokey and the Bandit (laughs) one or two are, but I'll ask Camille afterwards, she'll tell me these things. No, it's a real pleasure to be here. Someone said to me coming in, you surely can't tell us any more Churchill jokes, because I've told a few in the previous times I've been here, it's certainly true, he was very prolific and very witty, but there's naturally a limit to the number of jokes and repartee and so on that he actually took part in. But I did come across rather a good one <laughs> just recently, which wasn't actually Churchill, but he was there. At a key, point, a key point in World War II, Churchill and Stalin and Roosevelt were in the Soviet Union. And Roosevelt wasn't well. And so he skipped the evening discussion. It was just Churchill and just Stalin and Stalin loved his vodka and Churchill loved his whiskey. And they evidently had rather too much to drink. And Churchill got back to the British Embassy very, very early the next morning. He couldn't quite remember all that they discussed. He brought his secretary in and he dictated the memo and he sent it to Stalin first thing the next morning and said, Mr. Stalin, this is what I remember. Tell me what you remember. Stalin sent back an instant message. He said, don't worry. You were drunk. I was drunk. And the only other person there was the interpreter, and I've just had him shot. (laughs) Now, true story incident. Shows you how some people's discourse takes place in parts of the world. Now, we're not as bad as that, but to be honest, much of the public discourse in this country is getting disgraceful at the level of people on television calling themselves fair and balanced and just pulling the plug when they don't like what other people are saying opposite them and so on. And so I, I must say I do love Socrates in the City and the way that Eric's run this and the way you've done it. And Socrates' idea, fear no questions, not that we all have the answers, but fear no questions and follow truth wherever it leads. And the spirit of that I think is absolutely terrific. So it's a, it's a privilege to be here and uh, I'm honored to take part in this. My wife said I should apologize, which is a thing no speaker should do, but challenge you to think on a rather heavy topic at the beginning of the party season, but I don't apologize because it's important. At the end of the 19th century, and some of you have heard me use this story before, but it's sort of stuck in my mind as something that opens up a whole number of questions. The great German Chancellor Bismarck was talking to a friend who asked him what would be the decisive factor for the 20th century. And Bismarck said famously the fact that Americans speak English. In his day, the British Empire was the strongest, largest force on earth, but within 20 years had declined and faded. And the vacuum was filled by what became the American century. Now, in the same spirit today, the beginning of the 21st century, what are the key issues? No one would say one. But I'm moved by the fact that three of the deepest all have a strategic global dimension and at the same time a spiritual dimension. The first great issue for our generation is will Islam modernize peacefully? A monumental challenge, but not inconceivable. The second great issue for our century, which faith or philosophy or ideology will replace Marxism as the leading faith of China? As China takes her place alongside Europe and the United States as the leading center of the modern world. But the third great issue for our time comes close to home. Will the West now led by the United States, will the West recover its roots? Because the West is on the edge of abandoning its roots and the simple fact is, historically, that no great civilization prevails which cuts or severs its roots. And that is clearly what some people in the West would like to do. Now, I want to pick up one aspect of the discussion of this tonight Because in the last 10 years, there's been a very open, directed assault on one of the key ideas that's behind the West, the idea that there is one true God. Now, many of you in the room well know the story of the skepticism and secularism of the last two or 300 years. Many of the milestone books, for example, Joseph Lametri's L'Homme Machine, which was the first book, to argue that religion was the source of all the problems and atheism was the great liberator. Thomas Paine's The Age of Reason, Ludwig Feuerbach's The Essence of Christianity in Germany, and of course, the great unholy trinity of Marx, Freud, and What's the other one named Nietzsche? Nietzsche. Many people, too, know the great moments in Western history that were not books, but events, such as the enthronement of reason in Notre Dame during the French Revolution, or more recently, the famous cover of Time magazine in 1965 with the title, God is Dead. But anyone who's following this or knows that background realizes that the last ten years there is a new and central thrust on the Jewish and Christian faiths, on this idea that there is one true God. The first blast on this was probably Gore Vidal at Harvard in the Lowell lecture in 1992. And at the heart of this lecture, he argued, the great unmentionable evil at the heart of our culture is monotheism. And then he went on to argue that out of a barbaric, these are all his words, a barbaric Bronze Age text, the Old Testament, three anti-human religions emerged, all believing in what he called the sky god. And as he said, the only type of discourse worthy of the sky god was totalitarianism. And in many circles, that attack has been picked up widely in the 10 years since then. Christopher Hitchens' famous response to being asked, was George Bush right about the axis of evil? He answered, the real axis of evil is Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Or the famous article by Tom Friedman, the New York Times, following 9-11. The real problem is not terrorism. The real problem is religious totalitarianism. Not just Islam, but Judaism, the Christian faith, and Islam. Any religion that has this monotheistic, exclusive, absolute sense of there being one true God. And many others have picked this up and as many of you have followed, the post-election commentary by many of the pundits and the activists has harped on this, that those who supported the Red America, the Retro America, and George Bush were clearly theocrats and very dangerous in all sorts of ways. Now, this is a very powerful argument running through educated circles at the moment. I want to answer it and argue that, in fact, the exact opposite is the case. But at least to their credit... They've gone to the core. In other words, we are not talking about the private misdemeanors or the public gaffes of television evangelists. We're not talking here about the purported extremism of the religious right. We are talking about something that is truly central to the Jewish and Christian faiths and something that is truly central to our Western civilization. And I would argue that while these truths can and sometimes have been distorted, the fact is historically that this belief that there is one true God, in a word monotheism, is the most influential, is the most innovative belief in all human history, bar none, that's capable of inspiring the most intense moral fervor and leading to the most sustained moral action and very specifically it has given rise to the most decisive ideas and institutions that make up our Western culture. Now let me set this out as I've done several times before, the series of propositions and in which are inevitably fast and superficial and all arguable but that's what the time for discussion is about. Proposition one there are three lines of assault on monotheism today. It's very easy to see why this attack takes place now. An extreme multiculturalism has overlapped with postmodernism and, particularly, been reinforced by September the 11th. Multiculturalism, with its stress on relativity and tolerance, and its great fear of intolerance and judgmentalism and ethnocentrism. Postmodernism, with its explicit assaults on truth or absolutes, and its attacks on what it calls the grand meta narratives, the great big picture stories that explain the whole of life. Obviously, both of those would be deeply opposed to monotheism, the idea that the whole of life is understood in relation to one true God. But, of course, those movements of ideas have been given sharp point by September the 11th. A jihad, a holy war, in practice, with such devastating results. But what matters more than that convergence is the fact that you can see three lines of the assault on things that they see as the very essence and logic of monotheism. The first line of assault is that monotheism leads to excesses and to evils. Again and again, this comes up in one of two ways. For instance, the stress on truth. If you believe, they say, in absolute truth, and if everything else will be heresy and error has no rights, therefore you'll be in a world of the Inquisition and indexes and censorship. Or they put it more charitably, those who believe in one true God would like to bring their message to the entire world, and so they would like to see people one to their position at whatever style and cost, and so you get down to coercion, convert or be killed. And they say there's a very logical link between those. Very easy to answer that, I won't do it tonight, you just say very simply... More people died in the 20th century under secularist regimes in the name of secularist ideologies led by secularist intellectuals than all the Western repressions put together. The problem is not religion, but I'm not here tonight to answer that argument at the moment. The second line of assault is on the logic of monotheism in a world of diversity. Again and again, it's talked about the 800-pound gorilla in the room or the elephant in the rowing boat. How can you possibly have a diverse, tolerant, pluralistic society when some of these great faiths believe that their faith is the one true way? And many people have said that since the last election. Michael Kinsley in an article op-ed piece that went right around the country saying, we have our views, yes, he said, but... We never claim for a moment as atheists that they come from God and not for a moment do we want to impose them on anyone else. And there's a logic of monotheism, they say, which in an age of diversity is exceedingly dangerous. The third line of assault is on the abuses of monotheism. When it loses its integrity, it becomes a force which is hollowed out and all the more dangerous. So you see the extreme, they say, like the terrorists and the Islamists. Or you see more moderate versions, they say, like the uh, support for the Republican Party among many Christians. In other words, when monotheism is hollowed out, it becomes what Karl Marx calls the useful idiots, the people who can be used by this ideology or that ideology. And certainly in educated circles, and now often in wider circles, you get this easy critique, there's a real danger at the heart of our civilization, this belief that there is one true God. Now let me go on secondly to talk of the three core truths of monotheism. And this is where I don't want to get too heavy, but they are truly challenging. What's beyond doubt is that about 3,000 3, years ago, there was a sunburst across many parts of the world, and the idea broke out in many continents and civilizations that there was in fact only one true God. In other words, it's not unique to the Bible. You can see this in Persia with Zoroaster. You can see this in Egypt with the worship of Akhenaten, short-lived as it was. You can see this in India with the very unusual teaching of a guru who's almost forgotten now but actually believed in one true god the guru madhvacharya you can see this in china with the worship of shang di all over the place there was this bursting out of this belief and it's quite true that just simply and historically this is the most influential innovative belief in all human history more innovative and influential than any technological factor, than any geographical factor and certainly more influential than the effects of any other religion or philosophy such as monism or pantheism or paganism or whatever. But what's equally very simple and clear historically is that only one great variety of monotheism prevailed and endured, namely the Jewish. And it is that one which on the one hand almost uniquely claimed to be a revealed understanding and at the same time gave rise to the distinctive features that are most decisive about the West. Now what is it and where do we see this idea so powerfully? Those of you who know the Old Testament, clearly it's the book of Exodus from Mount Sinai supremely in the prophets, the prophet Isaiah of Jerusalem in the 8th century, and Jesus of Nazareth. So, for instance, when Jesus answers in terms of a question asked him who he was, I am he, the Greek words Egoimia, are the exact translation of the Hebrew, for I am who I am, which is how God reveals himself to Moses at Mount Sinai. But probably the fullest most daring exposition of them all is Isaiah's. Because he expounds and speaks of this vision of one true God at a time when his nation was nothing. A mere pawn at the feet of these huge world civilizations and imperial powers, Assyria, Babylon, and Persia. And in the teeth of that where all the real politique was entirely different he asserts this view which becomes actually the dominant view of the west but what are the core ideas and why were they so powerful the first idea concerns the being of god and is simply the idea that god is the incomparable one god as only I am, Isaiah announces on his behalf, and there is no other. In other words, you have here a view of God where he's not one with the cosmos or one with the historical processes, but totally independent, radically discontinuous discontinuous with his creation, totally non-contingent. The only one who is necessary, without whom there'd be nothing. The only one of whom the philosophers say his existence and his essence are one. What on earth does that mean? Well, you, you just think simply of Hamlet, to be or not to be. We as human beings can conceive of our existence and our essence as two different things, of our not being. But the very nature of the God revealed in the Bible is of a God of whom that's impossible. His existence and his essence absolutely inextricably linked the incomparable one. The second great core truth is in terms not of his being but his character. The unapproachable one. The word holy, for instance, is used by many religions but usually Holy is what makes God, as he's conceived in the religion, different from human beings. Not in the biblical idea. Holiness is uniquely ethical. A God who is righteous and just and has character and moral excellence. And that's the great defining difference. God is the unapproachable one. And the third core truth is in terms of God's rule and authority. God is the unsurpassable one, the Lord of all the earth. Now as Isaiah packs this, and the Old Testament as a whole unpacks this, you see that this idea radically debunks all the other gods. The other gods are only the projections of a human understanding of the fundamental forces of the cosmos itself and the attempt to represent them and manipulate them for human satisfaction and human security. And compared with the God of the Old Testament they are described as nothings, the worthless ones because God alone is. Or equally significant in the 8th century, the nations and the superpowers. The nations and the superpowers are the greatest representation of the forces of humanity in history. And you can see that tiny little Judah was completely besieged and dwarfed and overwhelmed by the powers of its day. And much of the ideology of those days is that the winning nations had the winning gods. And our modern idea of God on your side was there writ large. So how on earth could God be God if Judah was a loser. And Isaiah boldly says that even the nations are mere instruments in the hands of God. So Judah was defeated. But God wasn't defeated. God was judging Judah. And the imperial powers who are doing it were mere instruments in the hand of God. And you can see that this towering view of who God was, gives you a radically different view of the cosmos, of history, and of humanity. And it flows down with enormous consequences. But let me pick up that story. The story of the impact of this in the West is too complicated to put in an evening, but just make some remarks that you can follow up for yourself. But it's not too much to say that this is the central belief that has made the West the West. And without this, most of the decisive ideas and institutions we take for granted would go. And then I'll pick up the story, of course, of where we are today and where this discussion is likely to come out. You can put the legacy of these great beliefs in three ways. The first would be to notice some of the early and appealing consequences of this belief. What's interesting in the West, which of course once was Christendom and now is the West led by the United States, that some of the most decisive fruits of the Jewish and Christian faiths took more than a thousand years to work their way out into Western civilization. In other words, they didn't happen overnight. They didn't even happen at the time of the conversion of the Roman Empire. But you do see some of the early and most appealing fruits of the Jewish and Christian faiths in the early centuries. The first would be the Western artistic imagination. And it's important to stress today that many of the greatest poets and musicians and artists and so on in our Western world were not just people who are conventionally or culturally or nominally Christians but people who are passionately followers of Jesus Christ. Dostoevsky, who described his faith behind which he wrote his novels as achieved, having come through the hellfire of doubt. Or Johann Sebastian Bach, who wrote his great music and scrawled in the margins, glory be to the Lamb. And you can see how much of our Western imagination in its themes and in the great artists themselves are directly inspired by this towering faith. That one's pretty obvious. Second one, less obvious to many people. The contribution to our Western culture of giving and caring. No civilization in history, certainly no civilization in the world today, has a culture of giving and caring as the West does. And if you read the historians of medicine, atheist historians like Henry Sigarest, they trace it back to Jesus of Nazareth. The coming together of three main things, distinctive views of money, distinctive views of giving, and distinctive views of caring, and who you should care for, gave rise to hospices and hospitals and orphanages and leprosarians, and a tradition of giving and caring for the poor and the needy, which has never in history been rivalled. But the third one is the most ignored of all, and that is our Western tradition of reforms. Obviously, this goes back to the Old Testament and directly to monotheism. The Jews are very distinctive for having in their tradition a clear sense of self-criticism and self-correction. You read most of the ancient civilizations, the kings, the emperors, the khans, they're almost always praised. There's no tradition of criticism. But of course, the prophetic tradition, the whole idea that the people of God can go astray and need to be brought back, and they have a standard, thus says the Lord, gives you a completely different picture. And this flows down to the Christian traditions of reforms. And again, there isn't a civilization in the world today or history past which has anything approaching our Western tradition of reforms. Telemachus, challenging the gladiatorial games. Whoever it was who first stood up against infanticide in the Roman Empire. Montesinos and Las Casos challenging the conquistadores and their dreadful oppression of the Native Americans. Woolman, Wilberforce, and their tackling the abolition of slavery. Shaftesbury with industrial reforms, Elizabeth Fry, Elizabeth Nightingale and so on, Florence Nightingale. This huge tradition right down to Martin Luther King, led by people of faith, inspired by faith, and in each case as Martin Luther King writes from his famous letter from Birmingham jail, whenever an unjust law of society contradicts the just law of God, those who follow God and follow Christ have a job to do of reform directly back to this biblical notion of the one true God. Now those magnificent legacies of the Gospel and the Old Testament, they flower pretty early in Western civilization and have been characteristic of the West at its best ever since then. What's interesting though is that the three most decisive ideas of the West took more than a thousand years to work out. What are they? The first is what gives rise to the birth of science. The idea that the universe is an explorable reality that is God's handiwork and ours to investigate. Now again, if you compare the other religions, God and the cosmos were very closely linked. So you always kept coming up against the continuity between God and the world and the cycles of history so that nothing was ever new and everything went round and round and round. But not in the biblical view. Now of course what I've just said flies directly in the face of the many myths of secularism that we have today concerning science. And many people have pointed out that these are in fact mythical. For example, the secularist myth of the Dark Ages. That from the collapse of Rome right down to just before the birth of the modern age, you lived in this dark age dominated by faith and dogmatism and backwardness. Not so. There are still historians who say that, but many of the latest historians point out not so at all. Many of the most significant inventions came in that time, supremely the invention of the clock, maybe the single most important invention in the rise of the modern world. But not only the clock, water mills, stirrups, saddles, numerous things, so that by the end of the so-called Dark Ages, which of course is a name given by its enemies, which obscures the reality, Europe was the dominant technological leader in the world. The second great myth of modern secularists is a perpetual war between science and religion. And you have classic 19th century books like the founder of Cornell University, Andrew Dixon White, speaking of this. And secularists feed off many, many myths that are kept perpetuating this. One of my favorites, which is purely a myth, is the mythical event when William Wilberforce's son Samuel, who was the Bishop of Oxford, is supposed to have challenged Thomas Huxley, Charles Darwin's bulldog, about how we could trust his views since he claimed to be descended from an ape. In other words, an ad hominem argument which is exceedingly rude and highly irrational. Totally mythical. No one knew of that story in the first thirty years after it is purported to have happened. In fact, Charles Darwin admitted that Samuel Wilberforce's criticisms of evolution were the toughest criticisms that anyone had any, ever leveled against evolution. And Wilberforce was extraordinarily polite and courteous as well as sharp that evening. The simple fact is, once again, that science was born only in one civilization and almost to a person, the leaders of the birth of science were people of deep, deep faith and they were very clearly aware that they were working out of a matrix made possible by the scriptures. That God had made a world separate from himself, a world that was rational, a world that was explorable. And as his stewards we were expected to do just that. And as more fair thinkers like Alfred North Whitehead and many others have pointed out, the birth of science would have been impossible without the notion of monotheism and the implications of what it means for one true God. The second great decisive idea of the West is the idea of history. There have, of course, been chronicles and sagas in many earlier civilizations, but our modern view of history is a distinctive Western contribution. In fact, many people would say it's as important as science, although it's often overlooked and overshadowed by science. For example, science deals with us as human beings always as objects and objectifies us. Whereas history is deeper and far more important because it deals with us as human beings as subjects. And it's just one example of our history is actually more fundamental and more vital to human beings even than science. But once again, it came out of the biblical worldview. Instead of the world where God and the cosmos had a continuity and it would be impertinent to explore these things or the cycles made it impossible to think that anything new would occur. Instead of that, there was providence behind history, there was purpose in history, there were purposeful actions by human beings, and there was a point to understanding history and remembering history. And you can see how much of this grows directly out of this notion that's made possible by biblical monotheism. The third great decisive idea that's made the West is human rights. And here again, you don't have to think for long to see that human rights in the West and all that's flowed from that does not come from abstract statements and declarations. It comes, far more importantly, from the knowledge that human beings are made in the image of God and have a precious dignity because of that. And it's usually been kept alive more by people who felt and practiced it than by people who wrote great statements. And we should take very seriously the fact that that's one of the reasons why even great champions of freedom like Edmund Burke criticized America because it stopped its notions of human rights in abstract things like parchments. You may know, but Burke, who was second to none as a champion of the American colonies, and stood with tremendous courage at Westminster and many other places fighting for the American colonists. He was the first to champion them when he said they were hypocritical and consistent. When the colonists said, no taxation without representation, Burke said, that's right. But when it was then suggested that some of them should come over to the parliament at Westminster as the solution to that, Burke said, no. Why? because whatever they were saying about freedom and enshrining in their declarations they were not practicing with slaves and he was insistent before the revolution during the revolution and after the revolution that freedom and human dignity were not matters of abstract declarations and parchment statements they were a matter of practice and you can see that the cause of abolition was far more kept alive by people like John Woolman in Philadelphia or William Wilberforce in London, who didn't just write great ringing statements, but they so loved human beings, they were moved to tears and to action in defending them. Why? Because every human being, however badly educated, however physically handicapped, however socially deprived, had a dignity and a preciousness because they were made in the image of God. The greatest decisive ideas of the West go back directly to this notion. The third area you can see the legacy, and I'll just pass over this one more quickly, is our decisive Western institutions. And I'll mention three now, only important because they've so vitally shaped us and they're so vital in shaping other parts of the world. The first would be the universities. The second would be capitalism. And the third would be democracy. Now in each case, they had antecedents earlier in history. And in each case, you could say that the links were sometimes as indirect as direct. But many historians point out the importance of monotheism and the faith to each of those three. Now, the important point is to come down to where we are today. In a world of tremendous diversity, with three great varieties of monotheism, Judaism, Christian faith and Islam, how are we to see with these sorts of assaults what is likely to be the outcome? Well, two points here and then over to you for discussion. Firstly, how are we to envisage a global public square? We've talked a lot about a public square in this country, but now people are beginning to realize there's going to be a global public square. For instance, Jerry Falwell can make rude remarks about Mohammed in Lynchburg, and three weeks later, there are riots in the hall. Nothing today is private and domestic. It resonates around the world. Three positions are being put forward. The first is what's called progressive universalism. The idea that people's faith, ideology, whatever it is, is right and true and therefore should be applied to everybody. A progressive universalism, which of course would include communism, which would include Islam, but it would also include varieties of democracy, people who to see democracy imposed at the point of a gun, and it would include varieties of what's called monocultural feminism. Now, the danger of that approach is eventually coercion. Our way is the one way, and we'll apply it to everybody. Now, many people would put the Jewish and Christian faiths in that first category. They aren't. What's remarkable is, if you read Isaiah, this extraordinary announcement of one true God for the world is accompanied by the fact that this will be taken forward first by the birth of a baby and secondly by God's servant who is not a conqueror who is not a great captain of history but instead is someone who suffers hideously in order to bring God's purposes in other words in the light of both Isaiah and Jesus what Constantine did was a terrible diversion of what should have been. And Christians have to say with sadness things have been done in the name of the Constantinian vision and of Christ which have been profoundly evil. But that is not the biblical way of coercion. The second option in the global public square is what's called radical relativism. Well, was there all those differences? Let them all do their thing, whatever. A good example of that is the American Anthropological Association. 1947, they refused to sign the UN Declaration of Universal Human Rights because they were not universal. And if the logic of the first position leads to coercion, the logic of the second one leads to complacency. You just let people be wherever they are, but that, of course, is often to leave them in oppression and slavery and many other evils. The third position, which sadly has no champions today, certainly not in the public square, is the idea of an examined pluralism. Again, you can see the overtones of Socrates. On the basis of religious liberty, each human being is free to choose what they believe, but within the framework of a respect for the same justice and freedom for all other people so that when there are disagreements, which there will be, they're negotiated peacefully and persuasively rather than coercively. Now, as I said, there's no champion for that position, which means that probably we're sliding to a world where you have a two-tier universe. The top tier, led by the educated elites, will be a secular liberal cosmopolitanism across the whole world. And the second tier, which is patronized condescendingly, would be all the local religious believers which would not be just or workable for human society and would be a disaster for many of our faiths. But we need to articulate a better way if we're to see it happen. One last point. What's the likely outcome of this discussion in the future? If these intellectuals are assaulting what is really the central belief underlying the West, how will it come out? there are broadly three possibilities you can see. The first is what's called transposition. In other words, they say, these ideas were once in the Jewish and Christian key. But, in a secular age, they are transposed into some other key, and all be well. Sometimes they say these things started in the Jewish and Christian faiths, but like a rocket getting a spaceship into orbit no longer being needed, we don't need that. Now we've got human rights and that's it. So there's the first possibility which many of our secular friends would argue for, that we will see these things which were rooted in the Jewish and Christian faith, transposed into a secular liberal key and all will be well. The second possibility is decline. In other words, these things were rooted in a Jewish and Christian position And once you cut that, you have a cut flower civilization which survives for a while, but like cut flowers, eventually fades and doesn't last. Now, the discussion there usually centers around two things, the basis for many of our ideas and the boundaries. Human rights is a good example of the basis. There's no question the basis once was the fact people had a right because they were made in the image of God, and they no longer believe that will there be a sufficient basis? It's certainly true today that many atheists or liberals have a passionate, laudable commitment to human rights. But will it survive the loss of a basis? I think to see what will happen, you only need to look at the thinking of people like Peter Singer at Princeton. Human rights, he says, is a species chauvinism. It's a form of human conceit and he argues for animal rights and we're no different from the animals and you can see the logic of his argument without a basis for why human beings should have an inalienable dignity. We're actually undercutting the basis and the day will come when there is no basis. The other discussion is a question of boundaries and a good example here is capitalism. Clearly capitalism is the greatest engine of wealth creation in history but it once had a bedding and today it needs boundaries. And if you look at things like Enron and Wellcome and Global Crossing or look at the fate of capitalism in the Soviet Union or crony capitalism in Asia, you can see the danger of a capitalism without ethical boundaries just running away with itself. And so very clearly, this second possibility is a serious one, the possibility without the bedding, without the boundaries, of decline. The third possibility is of renewal, of a restoration of the roots of the bedding and the boundaries so that these powerful things go on again, but are constructive and not destructive. Now, how does this come home to us? And any of you who followed the post-election commentary, the levels of ignorance and prejudice that have been vented into the air just shows how badly this debate is going at many very important levels of public life today. Let me just close with this thought. First, to those of you who are people of faith, and then to those of you who'd be described more as skeptics or seekers or whatever. To those of you who are people of faith... Many Christians today are scandalized by, say, the removal of under God by Michael Newdow and the ACLU and so on. I would just say to you, the real scandal is not the removal of under God and the Ten Commandments and these sort of things. The real scandal is that those who are followers of Jesus are not living under God in the sense that this once meant And to you, I just say simply, this is not a truth to know about. It's a truth to experience. And as you can see from the book of Isaiah, the prophet describing him, when we talk about one true God, and I did very briefly, no description in a million years could do justice to it. It's something that each person has to experience. But secondly, it's not just something we should know, it's something we should live. And thirdly, it's something we should live and be prepared to pay the cost. Jewish tradition tells us that Isaiah's fate was eventually to be sawn in two. For a while he was exceedingly popular, but then under King Manasseh, he was put to death an extraordinary truth, that he paid the supreme sacrifice. But what about those of you who are not people of faith or more skeptical or seekers? I would say this to you. Why is this discussion today conducted so irrationally and unfairly? When you read many of these critics who are making these arguments, you realize first that their prejudice... Is leading them to remarkable ignorance. And that their ignorance is leading them to remarkably self destructive positions. And their destructiveness is leading them towards positions which are truly fundamentally menacing to our Western civilization. So think of this idea. One, true God. Incomparable, unapproachable, unsurpassable. Is this bombastic conceit? Is this the wishful thinking of a little nation trying to compensate for its smallness in the day of the grandeur of empires? Or was it, as they believed, true? The history of the Western civilization is a commentary on that question. As so often, the choice is ours, but so also will be the consequences.
0: Regarding the uh, basis for belief, wonder if you could comment on uh, possible alternatives that could fill in the gap if uh, our culture and society starts looking for a basis for belief other than what we have now. And, um, and if you could, uh, in that context, talk about um, uh, possibly Ayn Rand's objectivism.
1: On a lot of issues, there are really three grand options today. If you look back in history you might have found some others, but there are three grand options today in terms of faith, ideologies, and so on. One is the Eastern one and that would include varieties of Hinduism, Buddhism, right down to the New Age. So when those Eastern ideas come to the West they usually get very diluted you don't see classical Hinduism. You don't see classical Buddhism. You see it shaped by our Western desires. And today, part of the vogue with religion is the shift from religion to spirituality. So when you see the East, for instance, as a New Age philosophy, it's often ethically extremely undemanding and philosophically exceedingly vague. But that's one of the great answers. Now, my view is that those faiths are fundamentally flawed in themselves but they'd also be inadequate to provide the answer to what we need in the West. You take, for instance, Hinduism, Buddhism, and science. Both of those religions believe this world is a world of samsara and maya, in other words, illusion and suffering. That would never have given rise to science because it doesn't have an objective view of reality to be investigated and explored. The second great family of answers today is the secularist, which should include atheism, agnosticism, naturalism in science, materialism, all these various things. And um, again, I would argue, you'd have to look into it much more depth, my book Long Journey Home touches that and I'm sure many of the other books there do too, that those beliefs are flawed in themselves and they don't answer the problems that we need at this particular moment. And secularism, I said over human rights, is having a real problem showing how you can transpose something like human dignity into a secularist understanding. Because, for instance, read Bertrand Russell or read Richard Dawkins, read any of the great atheists. Who are we as human beings? We're just accidents. Well, how are you going to have a view of people caught in the toils of the machinery, handicapped and ill-educated and socially deprived, and still consider them precious if the best of us are only freaks in this meaningless universe, and so on. You could go on down the line, but those are the the big three, the Eastern, the secularist, and the biblical, the Jewish and the Christian. And I would say, without any hesitation, and John Rankin spends a lot of his time going around universities saying this whole thing too, the deeper you go in the individual questions and the social questions, You see these others falling short of the full range of the big questions. Yes, ma'am. Thank you for a wonderful talk. You asked three really tantalizing questions about the future. And I noticed, by the way, that you were very big on threes. You asked about whether Islam would modernize, what faith is likely to replace Marxism as the leading faith of China and whether the West is likely to recover its roots. And I wondered if you'd be willing to prognosticate a little bit about your ideas of of what will happen with respect to those three questions. Pick pick one, two, or three. Well, let me be very clear. I am not a futurist. I believe futurism is a quack science. (laughs) All, All they do is extend trends today into the future and call it a prediction. It's totally quack. So all I'm discussing is what we can see today take Islam first. I think what will eventually undo Islam is modernity. Now as the modern world, everything since the rise of the Industrial Revolution right down to cell telephones and so on, that is the greatest acid dissolving traditional structures we have ever seen. So in my field of social sciences it was said many years ago The day they saw Raisa Gorbachev using an American Express card, communism, Soviet communism was finished. (laughs) Now, the same today, you probably saw the New York Times on Sunday, you know, Iran 20 years on, or was the Washington Post. Anyway, the most popular program in Iran is what? Television program. Not your (laughs) whatever it is. It's Baywatch. Baywatch. And income firms like Victoria's Secret, despite the ayatollahs. That is the central thing that will erode the appeal of seductions, the acids of modernity, will undo Islam. Now, terrorism, of course, Islamism, is partly in reaction to American policies in the Middle East, such as Israel, but also against modernity and its destructions of tradition. So I would say watch modernity. And you can see the inroads in Indonesia, very, very advanced already. China, um, I was born in China, lived there, and loved going there. China is a a very interesting question because China is now seriously looking at what we're giving up. But in the discussion there, for instance, in the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences, when they come to Washington or one goes over there, there are certain options. Marxism is finished. It is a hollow shell. Again and again, even the public discussion, they use the word vacuum. In other words, a living belief in Marxism-Leninism has virtually gone. The party is still in power, but it's a matter of power, not a belief in the ideology. So you've got a number of options. One might be a return to a revived Buddhism or a return to a restored Confucianism. Now, the Buddhism has the problems I answered here, Buddhism is essentially world-denying religion. China is now in a world-affirming phase. Confucianism has a lot more to offer, but it's essentially elitist. And that's a great weakness in China. One serious option could be that China will just become materialistic. With the triumph of capitalism, immensely materialistic. But it's a very serious possibility that in 20 years' time, China could be decisively, if not uh, a majority, Christian country. Now, I was speaking there in October, a Chinese uh, businessman said to me, he, he said to me, am I missing something? We are fascinated with the Christian faith in the West because of what it's done, but we go to the West and see the West giving it up. And that's one of the present conundrums of history. Will it make a difference in the West? I would argue absolutely it will, but not in five minutes. It's not a matter of a watertight logical argument. But in the historical process, the West will reap the consequences of its choices. But that's what China is looking at now. Yes, sir. You would
0: mentioned before the three pillars of the Judeo-Christian God being all-surpassing, unapproachable, and the third one was?
1: Incomparable. Incomparable. Unapproachable, unsurpassable. And while they're very awe-inspiring, isn't it the fact that the Judeo-Christian God is all-loving and uniquely all-loving in comparison to uh,
0: the Eastern religions, to -hmm. the point of self-sacrifice, isn't that the point or the pillar that makes the Judeo-Christian God most attractive?
1: Don't under... You take the person of Jesus of Nazareth. He was extraordinarily appealing Come unto me, all you who labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But he was as hard as nails. If your right hand offends you, cut it off. And you have this extraordinary mixture of both. Now, I wasn't giving you a full description of Isaiah's uh, view of God. Part of it is God's immense mercy and his grace and his faithfulness and the fact that No disaster is ever the last word in any situation. There's always the hope of uh, possibility of restoration and and many, many things like that. But the danger today in the West, much of the American church only talks of that. Liberalism has ruled out all the other almost altogether and much of evangelicalism is soft, sentimental, sloppy view of grace and God's love which wouldn't empower a clockwork mouse. You know, you can see literally it is these you said, while he's awe-inspiring, we, we've got to get there. These things are so awe-inspiring, you have to take off your shoes at a certain point, both when you see who God is and also what this truth, when it was worked out, has actually done in history. But I, I wouldn't minimize the other for a second. Because I, I think that makes his love even greater, the fact no, that he right. is all those things that you said, which mm-hmm. I completely no, that's believe right. and agree with. Mm-hmm. But in light of all those things, he is still this way. hmm That's right. Thank you. I was wondering if you could uh, suggest a prescription for the renewal of which you spoke. The renewal of what? The renewal for the, you spoke of our country facing the
0: severance of our roots and uh, suggested questions people of faith or skeptics, as it were, could ask themselves in response to this. But I'm wondering if you have, and you spoke of renewal for the country, and I'm wondering if you have any prescription, as it were, for that renewal
1: there is no silver bullet but it it is quite easy to see areas that have to be tackled and you could expand on them you know considerable length but when we're talking about faith and freedom in America there are clearly uh, three (laughs) (laughs) areas you you can't avoid although there are many others but I would say these are the leading three. One is there is a crisis of faith itself. Now, that has nothing to do with the government or political things, but that is actually the deepest problem. There is a lack of integrity and effectiveness in faith in the West. The Muslims see this. You may know that the Muslim ideologue, who's Osama bin Laden's favorite writer, uh, Saeed Khutub, he talks about the Western Christian faith suffering from hideous schizophrenia. That's actually right. So the deepest crisis is in the faith among Christians, in the church. That's not a matter of the government. Now where it comes up in two inextricable ways in public life are the understanding of the past and religion and politics in public life. And both of those have gone badly wrong in the last generation and have got to be got right. I am passionately concerned about that third one, and I think it'd be a matter of political leadership. One of the things we lack is a national leader who could address the situation. We're caught between two extremes. I'm talking at this in the New Canaan Society Friday morning. Two extremes, a sacred public square and a naked public square. And we need a, a leader with a Lincoln-like courage and stature to stand above it and articulate something in the interests of all Americans and of the country itself. We lack that. Some of us suggested it to George I, And he admitted, frankly, he wasn't good with the vision thing. Some of us then suggested it to the gentleman who followed him, and he, sadly for him, got mired in scandal, although he was intellectually capable of it. We've also suggested it to the present administration, and they've become totally preoccupied with things in the Middle East. But at some point, America's in deep trouble unless a leader at that level stands up and does something. The secondary needs to be tackled is... um, the media coverage, they are clearly part of the problem, not because of a liberal bias. Often much simpler things, you, the, the famous uh, remark by David Brooks that uh, Tim Russett, who is a wonderful person of faith, wonderful person of faith, that he should have two, David Brooks's terms, bozos, Al Sharpton and Jerry Falwell discussing religion and politics, shows the problem. You've got five minutes or an hour. You get Tweedledum, Tweedledee, and then you've got good television, but you've got lousy solutions. And for a generation now, we've had these little simplistic soundbites, sensationalist tweedledum tweedledee, Ted Kennedy, Pat Roberts, you know. And they call this public debate. The media are part of the problem, and so on. In other words, there are things that could be done. You know, this year, and a number of us are going to some of the people whom we know could do it. I often share this, I don't know if I mentioned this last time. Just before the impeachment, I happened to have just for tears, a series of breakfasts and lunches with some of Washington's leading pundits, intellectuals, people like George Will, right across the board. And I asked each one of them, who for you is the national leader of stature who has a sense of American history, who has vision, who has courage, and who has access to the mic or the camera and speaks for you on these things? And out of 20 people I asked, not one of them said one. The fact is, on some of the deepest issues which take courage to rise above the purely partisan, the culture warring, etc., there's an extraordinary dearth of leadership. Yes, sir? Um, the British philosopher Anthony Flew, a leading proponent of uh, the... Mm-hmm. Uh, depending on how you look at it, atheist or uh, other wise position, recently conceded for the first time that the argument from intelligent design uh, was entitled, I hope I'm getting it right, to equal stature with the theory of evolution. Is this a development that you see of of any significance? Definitely. I mean, I was a student of philosophy in the sixties when Flew and A.J. Eyre and some of these were the ruling kings. And, you know, probably for f- 45 years, he's been the leading champion of atheism, although he's now in his 80s. So the news article went around this week, but the fact actually took place quite a time ago. So when Flew was a dogmatic atheist, he believed uh, in the steady state universe. And first, steady state collapsed, and the Big Bang Theory replaced it. And then all the recent stuff in terms of exploring this, which I imagine John Polkingholm and others got into other times, he's slowly been convinced that the atheistic position on that is wrong. So he's not a Christian, but he is now a theist. There is some intelligent designer out there, and the alternatives are totally improbable. Now, many people have to dismiss that. He's an old man. It's a deathbed conversion. What is one more atheist changing his mind, etc., etc., etc.? But I think it's very significant. One because of the position he takes, he has been one of the leading protagonists of atheism, you know, from all his adult life. But it's also a recognition of the momentum of some of the recognition of intelligent design. So I think it's very significant. We have
0: time for two very short questions, okay. one, one each.
1: Okay, I don't know if this is short, but um, I was wondering if you could um, explain to me a little bit more about why you find multiculturalism and relativism contradictory to the idea of monotheism, because as a person of faith and having been brought up um, in an environment that does, of course, promote multiculturalism and have been indoctrinated with relativism as well as issues of faith, Mm -hmm. I've come to a place where I myself have just felt that these... Embracing other ideas, which you've studied and know more about, is a way of understanding the one true God better, and mm-hmm. just with relativism that our thoughts are not His thoughts. So, in some sense, I, I don't see how it is necessarily mutually exclusive. But no, thank you. That's yeah. a, you're making an important point. Let me distinguish I'd put change it from multiculturalism to pluralism and diversity. Pluralism is a sort of more neutral word. Pluralism is simply a social fact. In our world today, there are a lot of people with a whole lot of very different ways of doing things. Speaking, believing, etc., etc., etc. Pluralism is a social fact. I wouldn't for a second deny it. It's just there. The early church was born in a very pluralistic society and had no problems with it. No right-thinking Christian is any problems with pluralism. It is just there. It's a social fact. Relativism is a philosophy. In other words, the idea that there is no truth and everything is only irreducibly relative. Pluralism as a fact is fine. Pluralism, when it's shading into relativism as a philosophy, is a dangerous idea.